I don't know if you've listened to my podcast before, but sometimes there's a bit of explicit language, and this is one of those times. It's Friday, December 1st, 2017. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And today, December 1st, today is the day that Donald Trump became president. Well, more accurately, today is the day why most of the Republicans in the House and the Senate put up with the fact that Donald Trump became president. It looks like they are getting their tax bill. Also, given the Mike Flynn plea deal, today is also the day Donald Trump's path to no longer being president became pretty clear. Flynn flipped to get someone bigger, someone close to the president, like a son or a son-in-law. Look, I do not know. I don't expect Trump to be deposed by judicial intervention, but this could complicate his life. So on the same day, the Senate gives him a legislative achievement for the first time, and it's an actual achievement, this happens. Now, the tax bill is not progressive. It certainly won't pay for itself. It probably will exacerbate income inequality, but it could also provide economic stimulus. Of course, probably will. And there are provisions that would let a lot of Trump voters feel that he and the Republican Party were delivering on what they promised giving them some more money in the pocket. And that's why you participate in politics in the first place. You don't stay invested for long just because the president shares some of your outrages and does it on Twitter. There's a lot of people who could do that for you, all right? That's a uh, angry AM radio host. You don't need the president year after year for that. That's junk food. That's not nourishment. For all the criticisms of this tax bill as a giveaway to the wealthy— or written under darkness, it is, when you think about it, really in lockstep with Republican philosophy. We do have two parties in this country. One of them is the Republican Party. They're, in fact, the more successful electorally. So you would think that when the Republicans do what they promised for the people who vote for Republicans, it will have good electoral consequences. And, and Trump really needed it. Before he was elected, his wildly veering from subject to subject, that might have had a curious appeal a voter might say to himself or herself, but statistically himself, voter might say to himself, well, why not take a chance? But if he didn't show that he was actually delivering benefits, no amount of tweeting would be able to save him. And by the way, we have seen that tested. We have seen all amount of tweeting. This bill, this is a mainstream consensus wish list of the conservative movement, no matter what you think of it, was necessary for Trump's future agenda necessary but not sufficient. He will have to avoid international calamity. He will have to hope the economy continues to perform well. And he will have to, of course, avoid prosecution. And he'll also have to ignore that angry, growling voice inside of him that's yelling, fire Mueller, fire Mueller. That won't be easy for Mr. Trump. On the show today, it is an Anton Twig. We award Lopstars. But first, he is a stand-up comedian and a legendary TV dad. Bob Sackett gladly sat down for this interview, but as you can tell, he has no real use for interviewers. I don't mean he has disdain. I mean, like a dog has no use for wall art. Even if he notices it, it doesn't really distract him from his business. With this in mind, here's Bob Sackett, and at times, me. If Then is a podcast about technology, society, and power. Power! Raw power! On this week's If Then, Slate's April Glazer and Will Aremis discuss how bots messed up the net neutrality comment process and whether that gives advocates a last chance to preserve 
an open internet. If then, I've been enjoying it, perhaps you will too. If you do, then let us know. Bob Saget, he's a noted actor, comedian. He was on this sitcom once, according to his credits, full something. Not really familiar with that piece of work. Exactly. (laughs) He is uh, now out with a new special, and we're going to talk about his whole career and where he and comedy stands right now. Hello, Bob. How are you? I'm really good. I feel like we haven't talked until this moment. Yeah, yeah. It feels like uh, we just sat down and I started reading an intro and you were like, this is not normal human conversation, but I'll go for it. I like it. I like it. I'm a pro. This is not my first rodeo. That's actually the first thing we said to each other. I like the idea of callbacks to things that the audience can't possibly get. Well, that's what I love about Carson and uh, Letterman. You got a lot of something happened right before. Yeah, yeah. They would say, oh, that lady in the fifth row, that woman from Des Moines, and it was literally for the studio audience. You know, right, Letterman will say, I don't know, maybe you're a podiatrist from Dubuque, and the audience goes crazy, like, is this funny? I don't understand why this funny. We'll find out more from Mary later, (laughs) and Mary only talks during commercial breaks. Yeah. So I want to ask you about a specific joke, and you would say it often when you would do panel on talk shows. Uh, there'd be a string of rapid-fire jokes that made sense to me, and then you would say, and tell me if I'm getting it wrong, my mother's pokey, my father's Gumby, and I'm a Winnebago. No, you're so close, Did and I it's fu- amazing. Oh, no, you didn't. No, you're on it. You're on it. You're honoring me to a point you wouldn't know. My first five minutes, I wrote in a law library in Cornell because my girlfriend, who became my ex-wife, yeah, well, if we became a wife. Yeah, there's a period we, in between. We don't. No, we actually we cut out the middle, so we just went right to ex-wife. <laughs> That's but, good. Yeah, it's easy. There's no prenup, but uh, yeah, prenup. during the dating experience, just you know, give her twenty percent and move on. Yeah, it, that was oh, oh, if I dreaming twenty. Uh, but, oh, what's twenty mean? That's, that was the dating age after we left each other. But that was twenty years ago. We got divorced. More mm-hmm. than that, we have three beautiful kids. Um, I have a fiance now. Uh, first, first time that means uh, something wonderful to me in my six relationships. I'm, I'm a pretty noble guy, actually, as much as I... And that's where the bodiness comes from. Or, you got to get someone else to say that, though. That's the problem. No, but yeah, because yeah. it means I'm guilty. Yeah. Uh, but, but You know but, what, Bob? No, Bob but I've Sagan, done, I got to say, done he's things. a pretty noble guy. Okay, I've done you. things. It's weird to talk about yourself and say, and it is kind of wrong to go, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a good guy. I'm a noble guy, you know? But that can bite you in the butt because you're saying... Uh, I've never done anything, and I've done some dumb things. I wrote a book called Dirty Daddy, and in it I had a chapter of relationships I'd rather not talk about, and another one called Things I Shouldn't Have Done. And that's like drunk driving and stuff. And that's that you don't do. You can kill people. But we're in a world right now where misogyny is... It's just, it all started with the grab on Access Hollywood, mm-hmm. uh, and it kind of became this male uh, howling at the moon and how guys can have this locker room talk. And it ain't locker room talk because there are people that follow through that have problems. But I, I, I can't say anybody's done in this world when our president is Donald Trump because he's been finished many times. Yeah. He's been bankrupt, he's come back, and he's the president of the United States. And there's probably stuff on him that is just completely smeared over that we don't know about. There's probably stuff on a ton of people. I mean, we're finding out right now, you know, people that are out criticizing people and they've got a 14-year-old boy in their closet. And and he's he's next to a steamer, so at least he's not wrinkled. But, uh, <laughs> see, that's not an appropriate joke. That's wrong. But, that would be wrong. But that's wrong. But my you know what? Intention, my laughter, if you quote that, mm-hmm. if you quote that, yeah. it's 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 disgusting. Yeah. If you say it, and someone hears it, they could go, "I'm not listening to this crap." Or, right. oh, he didn't mean anything by that because he's just trying to get through it. Yeah, but the, what you laid out, it just means I've now had a third of the audience of what I started. Just just so you know. Do you think so? Three, no, I don't. But, <laughs> I, but I mean, I watch one of my favorite choices are not listen, protest, or keep listening. 
I'm not even that dirty. I, you know, I was watching a family guy in uh, South Park recently. It's like the same tone. Yeah. It's just, I, you know, I had one joke about a, I got to be careful here, but I, I had one joke in the special, which is true. I was like in Canada and Winnipeg and, and, and I, and I had a, a medical problem and it was frozen and it was in my posterior. And, okay. and I'm saying that it, it broke off because it was so cold and that a squirrel got a hold of it. Now that's kind of a PG 13 thing, what I just said, but, um, and then some people said, you can't say that. That's terrible. That's that's filthy. The answer to that, if it could fly, has a lot to do with the framing and the format because for all, I'm not talking about actual physical, uh, tangible transgressions, Louis, uh, Bill Cosby, um, Harvey Weinstein. I'm talking about people getting upset at remarks I'm not familiar. What did, what did Harvey do? Yeah, just everything. Like, <laughs> imagine it. It was all of it. My, my point is that for all the comments that get protested, there are tons of stuff going on either under the radar or on, you know, morning radio or on the podcast I listen to or in certain genres of speech or movies that no one gives a damn about. So it's all, it's all like what we choose to pay attention to. And to some extent, uh, we're primed to get a little upset. Certain segments of our society get off on that. I could use somebody not making fun of other people. That's what I could use. And I know that there's people that are um, evil in the world that want to hurt people, but we shouldn't be those people. We're here to unify and have a good time. And if you don't want it, you can get your money back, and I'm sorry, and and, and take off because I'm not going to have a fight. I just want to have a good time. I really have become Liza Minnelli. I just, I, <laughs> I, I want to entertain people. I really, really do. And I think. And they, they look read, to you for a catharsis. I am what trying, you're provide, well, providing. This is the weird part. And you mentioned it at the top. I was Danny Tanner. While I was doing the, the video show, and which is before YouTube, which meant if you wanted to see someone get hit in the nuts, you had to go through me. Um, not even on sports. <laughs> you're the gatekeeper. I was that. the yeah. gatekeeper yeah. of blooper ball hits. And I uh, am, am proud of that. And I'm proud of, but you're not proud of it while you're working 90 hours a week, making a lot of money complaining, which is who wants to know that person? Yeah. Not me. So I went through a lot of therapy and grew up. You know, actors complain if they're working or not working. Yes. I try not to when I'm working because I've been on the other side. It's not my first rodeo. That's the catchphrase for this interview. <laughs> so you do you do these two shows that are absolutely beloved, but obviously we know where your comedy is and the comedy you want to be doing, and we know the level of comedy on those shows, which isn't to say it's bad. It's just pitched to a different audience and, and, and not one you're totally into. Do you think that took a little out of you? Beyond the 90 hours, the fact that you were giving so much to this art form that wasn't exactly what you wanted All to be All the doing. fun that I had was in both shows there was a lot of fun to be had mm -hmm. uh the stuff in between a lot of the dialogue just playing and acting crazy acting like nine-year-old boys dave john and i had a really good time right and that's why there's love between the kids and us and uh, there's just it's just pure love um i'm here in new york i'm gonna see ashley i want to see mary kate you know i mean uh and they're not on the show oh big news story you know it's a the show was made for for 14-year-old girls. It wasn't meant for 50-year-old critics to say, I don't like this show. You know, it wasn't, it's not that show. It was a two-dimensional show with morality plays that were necessary for a lot of people. More people know me from that, I think, around the world. We just went to Japan. I mean, it's all over the world. Then anything, because they grew up watching it, there was sometimes a certain hipness to it. Something weird was going on between the lines, but it was pretty much, you know, don't bring a horse in the living room, don't drink beer at the prom. <laughs> Music comes in on synthesizers, and People think I'm like that character. Yeah. And I wanted to be a clean freak and I wanted to hug people, but I didn't want Orgwear cardigan sweaters, uh, which someone who's very guilty wore, wore them all the time. Um, <laughs> and how can I be cynical or not uh, appreciative when a mother comes up to me and says, I raised my kids by myself 
and because my husband left or died and same with father saying it about my my wife died and they said you helped me talk to my kids you opened up issues and they weren't the issues from the show because some of ours were a little lame but some of them were very real like you know mom mom died came up and yeah we talked about it but i bet none of those families brought a horse into the house either no they didn't and that horse became fodder for a lot of uh inappropriate humor yeah and then he became glue um he did no never glued him no no, no animals were were harmed permanently only during the shooting <laughs> people say to me uh, before a show before a special before anything are you going to be funny tonight and that's don't say that to a comedian it's like saying to your pilot are you going to get me to cleveland it's like saying to your brain surgeon am i dead you know are you gonna i don't know let me just work on your brain yeah um so yeah, I've been doing You're gonna this. Tune that guitar, Bruce. Yeah, right. I think I will. Or tonight. people always say, "Do you have a tuner?" And it's like, <laughs> "I got a phone. I got a tuner." So I've been doing stand-up since I'm 17. So I mean, that's crazy. 43 years of stand-up is nuts. Yeah. And uh, I did more stories in zero to 60 than I have ever done. Uh, zero to 60 means I'm gone from zero years old to 60 years old, and then I got the the remake ripoff of the North by Northwest poster. This was the first time it's ever been released this way. This is not a Netflix show. It's on uh, iTunes and Amazon in a big way. You know, they're putting banner ads and all that crap. Yeah. But uh, it's also on uh, Google Play and AT&T. It's on over 100, uh, whatever, the platforms yeah. all over the world. So there is no way to avoid it if you want to see it. Even in Canada. Even in Canada. That's the thing I got to fix because somebody <laughs> said, I can't get it in Canada. You know you're doing my joke is, you know you're doing my joke is. That's a comedian. Uh, I have said before. <laughs> well, you also, don't want to say it in conversations and, and pretend this is just something that's flowing out of you naturally. Yeah. Right. To quote I, the great Bob Saget, Bob Saget. And you got to say it in third person. Yeah. I say it myself. To quote the great Bob Saget, and then it's then I'm talking in third but person. But if you're actually on stage, you say, it just happened to me or just on the way over. It's, oh my it's, God. it's 180 degrees of truth. You do, however, say I just flew in from. That <laughs> yeah. is never a lie. I just got in from, and I couldn't believe it that the turbulence and the bathroom and the people and this baby and okay enough we know you travel so bob you're sitting in the cornell law library yep and here we get back to why is my my first joke not a joke yes so the first thing that i said in the law library was i have no friends and i have no life and i live in a moped (laughs) and that is nothing but rhythm yes and absurdity Mm -hmm. um i had no friends growing up i moved from um i i did have friends that's not true but all of my energy wasn't into friendships. I didn't have parties. I didn't go to parties. I didn't, I went to one concert. I was like complete nerd burglar. And then at 22 in LA, I just kind of let it rip and just became part of that early 80s scene with all these people. So I was like a kid that went to Pleasure Island rather than go to my graduate school at USC, which would have made me a horror director by yeah 20 years ago. But, but it was all worth it because I kept doing so many different things. And then I came up with jokes that were way ahead of their time at about 18 uh, that were in the area we're in now. Um, there was a senator that was in the newspaper, and, and I was sometimes topical because I was so outraged, so I would go into absurdity. There was a senator who had allegedly had relations with a 14-year-old boy, and that just sounds a little familiar right now. And my joke was, my mo- I was 18, my mother never let me, let me go to camp as a kid because she thought I'd get embarrassed undressing in front of little boys. But I've changed a lot because I kind of like it now. And then I said, that's not true. I like it a lot. And then, then I said, that's not true. I'm not a senator. <laughs> so it, it got to a relevant place. Good. And it's a three-stepper. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I always would do three-step jokes. And now, now I just kind of go 
setup joke. You know, Bob, there's a middle step. No, I'm sorry, I work alone. <laughs> but um, so I get more jokes crammed in uh, in in an hour. But you have to bust that those jokes. You, uh, it can't you can't open a set with them. They have to get to know you a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And that's the advantage. That's the difference about my life at 61 than it's ever been. People get all the different sides of me, which makes it very easy for me to try to grow. And and now the stepping off point for me. Uh, zero to 60 is a special I wish I'd done 25 years ago so that I... The name wouldn't have made sense. No, but uh, zero to 40. Because <laughs> Secret of Life is 42, according to the... Uh... Life, the universe, and everything. Oh. Yeah. Doug my, Adams. Oh, such good stuff. <laughs> really good. And it was, it was for me. Unfortunately, though, I got divorced around then, so that it was complicated. But I guess it's when you go, aha, I want this to be different. And, uh, and it was the right... Nothing's ever right. Things always hurt, but you get through them. And comedy has been... The audience has been my friend it's a true relationship and seinfeld says, says it pretty eloquently you know it's a discourse bob saget's new special zero to 60 is apparently on every platform in america canada and throughout the world thank you so much great to meet you really great to meet you i'll see you at your home later okay good <laughs> and now the spiel hi mike Got this email. Hi, Mike. As the winter approaches, individuals in New York can stop by and grab a few lightly used hoodies and goodies for the family to prepare for the cold winter months. It's Hoodies for the Homeless, and they're opening their first ever pop-up store, and they've named the store For the Greater Hood, to which I say, oh, Jesus. The Salvation Army says that, too, and they provide clothes for the homeless, but I really mean it. Oh, Jesus. This is how we're going to solve homelessness via the hipster's favorite garment, the hoodie. I was thinking maybe housing would work. Maybe that would be housing for the homeless. But they went with hoodies. They went with hoodies for the homeless. Because when I see a homeless guy, I say, you know, that guy needs to dress more like Bill Belichick. And then again, when I see Bill Belichick, I say, how does that homeless guy have so many Super Bowl titles? From the makers of adult rompers for the Rohingya, it's hoodies for the homeless. And because we were casting about for another annoyingly trendy buzzword and claymation was taken, we've got a pop-up store. A pop-up store supplying hoodies for the homeless. Next week, the store will be bottling local kombucha to ship to disaster zones. So that's what I got an email about today. I get plenty of emails and Facebook posts and tweets and I like to check in on them from time to time, every three weeks, in fact. And that is why we call it the Antan Twig. It is the old English word for 21, 21 days, like a fortnight is 14 days. So every three weeks. Pierre, when was the last time we did this? It was September 29th. So that was uh, actually two months ago. It's over two months ago. Well, we're talking about September and November. Those are those kind of lame 30-month days. So it was, it was 62 days ago. It should be two normal months. But yeah, I get it. It wasn't three weeks. So I guess that's my first correction. And my second correction is this. I said Beethoven's ninth. I meant Beethoven's fifth. That was wrong. I also should have been more specific. I meant Dave Beethoven. I was talking about his limericks. The ninth is the best. A few people wrote me about this. On a Friday the 13th, possibly in one of those lame 30-day months, I was saying, oh, people are always so taken by Friday the 13th. I mean, what are the chances? And I said, yeah, it's one in seven. If it's, if it's the 13th of the month, one in seven of those will be Fridays. And Yellen writes in to say, actually, <laughs> under the Gregorian calendar, which repeats every 400 years, we will have 688 Friday the 13th, 
while we have only 687 Wednesday the 13th and 684 Thursday the 13th, Friday the 13th is the most common 13th of the month. The odds are 1 in 6.98. And I would have been really disgusted, except he signs off. Nitpickingly yours, Frank Yellen. I guess I was edified by that. As much as I bristle at a correction, I said 7, I meant 6.98. But it was good. Now I learned. Joan Loring writes in, I was talking about Sarah Huckabee Sanders and her argument that, well, nothing the president did should be held against him because the American people certainly voted for him. And I pointed out, well, they, they didn't, not most of them, and most people voted for someone else. And also, why, you're actually saying that that is the referendum on the ethical acts that he took just because he won the non-popular vote? And Joan writes in saying she doesn't even think that Sanders was arguing that. She took Sanders' argument to mean that most Trump voters actually knew about Trump's sexual assault allegations, believed them, and voted for them anyway. When she says the people have spoken, they processed it, and they were like, okay with that. Huh. I don't know. I guess there's just no amount of speculating about what Sarah Huckabee Sanders really means or what she thinks good arguments are. So I'll buy your theory, Joan. Dave Vallier, Valliette, I don't know, maybe a cousin of uh, Bob Saget co-star Dave Coulier. Dave Vallier writes, Mr. Pesca, good, off to a good foot. I would like to suggest a better framing for the ending of your gambler's fallacy episode. So the gambler's fallacy is thinking you're due, like you're playing roulette and red keeps coming up and then you think, oh, we're due to hit green. That is the gambler's fallacy. But he rightly notes, but if you're talking about a deck of cards and you keep going through the cards and you get a whole bunch of red ones, black actually does come up more often towards the end of the pack. I know I made explicitly clear that we were talking about variations of a game of chance where the odds reset each time. So getting a black card, then you'd put the black card in the deck. He contrasts the deck of cards where you don't replace it to the roulette wheel, which of course is uh, fresh odds every time. And he says, in life, you rarely know if you have been presented with a metaphorical stack of cards or a metaphorical roulette wheel. Ah, drinks on table nine, but ah. In another segment where I was talking to Maria Konnikova, because uh, the last email was about a Konnikova segment, uh, Thomas Catron writes in about the subject of being scared to death. And he alerts me to something called Takosubo cardiomyopathy, which is a presumed sudden surge resulting in atypical cardiac dysfunction. The full physiology is still murky, and it's rare to die from it, but it happens. You can get scared to death. And here's what grabbed me with this. The reason it's called Takosubo cardiomyopathy is that Takosubo is apparently a Japanese word for a type of octopus trap, which is shaped like a narrow-necked pot, because that's what the heart looks like when affected. Actually, maybe that's what causes most of the mortality. It's not the actual event. It's just being told afterwards by your cardiologist. Well, we have the x-rays, and your heart looks exactly like an octopus chest. Ah, ah. Puts down the scungili. Why were you eating scungili in the doctor's office? John Cork writes in. This is my segment where I talked to the author of Was the Cat in the Hat Black? Talking about the uh, racial implications of Dr. Seuss. He has a, an interpretation. As someone who has read The Cat in the Hat as a child, and to my own son, the question of race does not address the central notion of the story, which is there is no cat. There are only two kids left at home on a rainy day who break the rules, 
and argue about the rules. They both pretend to be the cat and thing one and thing two and try to clean up the messes they make. And when asked by their mother what they did, they will likely lie through their teeth. He also says there were no wild things and Peter T. Hooper does not go to any real foreign land to collect eggs. What's next? Clifford the Big Red Dog was actually Brad Pitt all along talking to himself? What are you telling me? Harold really was the purple crayon? And Judy Blooms, are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. Are you saying there is no God? Are you saying there is no Margaret? But thanks for the literary interpretation, John Cork. And now comes time to award the lobstar of the Antan Twig. And I'm going to award this to a listener who wrote in after I went kind of nuts about the practice of spilling your hot coffee into the trash at Starbucks just for a little room for milk. And Taylor Aiken writes in and says, Mike, I can hear how upset you are. I used to be that way too. Upset in general? I don't know. Please let me help. I asked for room for milk but got a cup totally full. So I asked the barista by the milk and sweetener hub, you know the hub, if she'd pour a little out into the sink behind the counter. And she says, oh, that's okay. You could just dump it in the trash. This is a barista endorsed activity. I guess that makes me feel a little better. And that is why the lobster of this Antan twig is Taylor Aiken's barista. And that's it for today's show. Whatever happened to predictability, the milkman, the paper boy, just producer Pierre Bien-Aimé. I know, it's bien but come on, rhyme people. It's like just producer Mary Wilson likes to say while crossing the Golden Gate Bridge, everywhere you look, everywhere you go, there is a face of somebody who needs you. When you're lost and you're all alone, a light is waiting to carry you home, and that light is a kerosene lamp carried by Steve Diogenes Lictai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts. The gist. My mother's snagglepuss, my father's Bjorn Nitmo, and I once ate a Muppet for sport. Improved that Peru, do Peru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>